If I could draw us back in. We've been in a series as a church in a book of the Bible called Mark. Uh, we're calling this series Jesus, Con, or King. And we're really looking at the person of Jesus Christ as described and talked about in Mark's gospel. It's a fairly short book of the Bible. Uh, but just asking that question, is, is Jesus who he said he was or has kind of in church history, has he been made out to be a bit more of a legend, or was he actually a con man who maybe was able to do some impressive stuff, but wasn't actually the son of God who he said he was? Just where do we land on on Jesus? So we're look, we've been in this series for quite a few months now. We're going to be in it for, for a good while yet. This morning we're in Mark chapter 7. Um, I'm going to invite Andrea to come up and read, mostly because she is wearing an Ottawa Senator's shirt. She um, came over to our place a while ago when, when the Sens were playing Boston, and she's a big Boston Bruins fan, and she's wearing another shirt this morning. And I'm so proud of you. This is a big moment for us. This is good. This is good. It's part of your... Yeah, it's just, it's just good. It's just good. All right, Andrea's going to read uh, Mark chapter 7, verses 1 to 13. They'll be on the screen behind us as well. Now when the Pharisees gathered to him with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. And the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? And he said to them, Well did Isaiah prophesy of you, hypocrites, as it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandments of God and hold to the tradition of men. And he said to them, You have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. For Moses says, Honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, If a man tells his father or his mother, Whatever you would have gained from me is Corban, that is, given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father and mother, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down, and many such things you do. Thanks, Andrea. All right, I'm going to sit this morning. Hope none of you are getting nervous. Some of you are going, oh boy, he's sitting. We know what that means. It's a long weekend. I want to sit. I want to chill a little bit. Um, I want to start with a question. It's a big question. Really big question. Maybe maybe too big for early on a Sunday, but we're going to go for it anyway. The question is this. What is the source of all the world's problems? What do you think is the source of all the world's problems? problems. A massive, massive question. Some in the room, or if we were to go around the city and take a bit of a survey, some people may say things like uh, greed. You know, greed is the source of all the world's problems. People wanting things and kind of stepping on other people in order to get the things uh, that they want. Some other people might say, well, religion. Religion is the source of all the world's problems. You know, people have their beliefs. They believe that their beliefs are right and that Because they think they are right, others are wrong, and then they do things to oppress or to hold down or to fight or to kill other people who hold other beliefs. So it all has a religious root. So religion is the source of all 
of the world's problems. Maybe other people think that it's the media. Maybe it's all the, all the fake news that is out there. That's been something that's been talked a lot about over the past few months. We just don't know who to believe. We don't know who to trust. We, we just don't know what information to take on. Is No, that is absolutely accurate. So that's the source of all of the world's problems. And then even among people of faith, uh, of the Christian faith, you might hear of somebody being referred to as the devil. Maybe the, maybe the devil. Maybe it's that little guy with the pitchfork and the, the, the pointy ears. He is the source of all the world's problems. He's kind of running havoc in the world, and it all comes down to the devil. The problem with all of these answers, and most of the answers that I think that we would give or that we would come across, is that they're all out there. They're all external. They're all things that we think other people do or other people are the cause of. And we fail to consider the fact that maybe the source of all the world's problems is actually in us, resides in each and every one of us. This is something that Jesus said himself. He says this in Mark chapter 7, verse 21, verses that we're actually going to be looking at together next week, but they still speak very much to the core of what I'm wanting to share with you this morning. Jesus says, For from within... Out of the heart of man. Women in the room, don't go, I knew it. I knew it was always men. It was always men. No, out of the heart of mankind. Out of the heart of mankind come evil thoughts. Sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. Cool. It's a convicting list, isn't it? Because if you're like me, you're going through some things on that list going, oh, I'm doing all right. And then you keep going through the list going, oh, I'm not doing all right. And some things here, pride, foolishness. I, I don't know what other things might come to mind for you. Hopefully not about me. I'm more so thinking about you, okay? Uh, but where you think in that list, yeah, okay, maybe there's a bit of this in me. All these evil things come from within, and they defile a person. It's been said like this, the heart of the human problem is the problem with the human heart. The heart of the human problem is the problem with the human heart. In these verses that we're looking at this morning, from a little bit earlier in Mark chapter 7, Jesus confronts some religious heavyweights about their heart, about something going on, or in this case, not going on, in their hearts. What we're reading about is a uh, fascinating story of some religious heavyweights from Jerusalem, you know, this, this, this capital of, at that time, of, of Jewish thought, Jewish tradition, Jewish academia, all of it. And there's this delegation that is sent out from Jerusalem to Galilee, the region that Jesus is in. And they're coming to confront Jesus. They're coming to call him out on a few things. And they finally show up and they say, Jesus, why is it that your disciples, they don't wash their hands. They they don't cleanse themselves before they have a meal. They're ignoring the traditions of the elders. They're, They're eating with defiled hands. That's the word that is used, defiled hands. It's a very strong word. It's not just, oh, there's, you know, like a parent might say to a child who's been out playing in the park and then comes home for lunch, oh, let's wash your hands, they're a little bit dirty. Defiled. And that's a strong word. I don't know how many of you are West Wing fans. I absolutely loved that show. And in one of the seasons, there's an episode called Two Cathedrals. And uh, President Barley goes to um, National Cathedral, I believe it is, in Washington, and there's a funeral for a friend of his. And he is, he, uh, President Barlow is just distraught. He's, he's, he's had, it's been a rough go, and now a friend of his has died. And at the end of this uh, funeral service, he asks the Secret Service, the staff, everybody just to get out, to give him some time in this big, beautiful cathedral 
on his own, and he just starts laying into God, like tearing a strip out of God. You, you're supposed to be this, and you let this happen, and this, and that, and this, and that. And he's, he's, you know, he's acting as the president of the United States, right? He's got a front row seat to the problems of the world and also the problems in his own life, including the loss of a dear friend that he's there mourning. And at the end of this rant against God, he takes a cigarette, and he lights a cigarette, takes a drag, throws it on the floor and squashes it out with his foot. I was reading this article about Martin Sheen, the actor who plays President Barlett, and he's a Catholic, and he was saying that the filming of that was really, really hard for him because he's in this big, beautiful building doing something that just felt so wrong as he was filming it. And even the scene gets that point across. You get a measure of his defiance, of his anger, of his rage, not just through the rant, but by the action of defiling this supposedly, you know, ornate and, and, and beautiful, sacred space. Defiling. It's a strong, strong word. And these, uh, these guys that have come down from Jerusalem to confront Jesus, they're saying, your disciples' hands, have, they're eating with defiled hands. There should be something sacred about it. There should be something of reverence. And they've just thrown that off to the side. Jesus, what are you doing? You're you're a rabbi, you're a teacher, you're supposed to know our ways, our traditions. What are you doing allowing them to do this? Now, we might hear that and think, well, this is kind of hard to relate to. You know, these Jewish traditions that they would have held at the time where you would have had uh, many uh, religious leaders at that time where before they were going to be eating food, if you were to have them over to your house, if you're going to be with them having a meal, they would go to great lengths to cleanse themselves before they ate. They would, they would have these wash basins, and they would wash their hands in a certain way and then hold them up, like really, really scrubbing at them, and then holding them up so the water would actually drip off of their elbows. They would have somebody else pouring the water over their hands so that the dirty water would drip off of their elbows and then using the most clean cloths, drying their hands, making sure that their hands weren't defiled in any way. In our culture, we have a hard time relating to that. We went out for dinner in Little Italy the other night with friends, and the, the, the polite thing to do before you have dinner is you go and you, you wash your hands quickly, but it's pretty private and it's quick and it's fine. We don't, culturally, we don't think of it quite the same way, although maybe just a little bit about manners, but not you know, the tradition of, of elders that we really hold on to and really prize. We don't think of it the same way. But in our own culture, even among churches, even among people of various faiths, we would certainly still have our traditions. We would certainly still have the things that we would kind of cling to. Now, as, as, as a Christian myself, and as somebody in this church, I'm obviously most able to speak to some Christian traditions. So let's, let's do that for a minute right now. I don't know how many of you have grown up uh, in the church, but maybe when you uh, were growing up, maybe you heard an expression uh, said to you maybe by a parent or by somebody in the church, uh, meaning very well about wearing your Sunday best to church. Ever, anybody ever heard those two words together, wearing your Sunday best? I remember when I was a kid, I was asked to be uh, the ring bearer at my uncle's wedding, and I didn't own a suit. I was probably like six or seven years old. So uh, mom took me out to the mall, and I, 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 they bought me my very first suit to go and to be the ring bearer at this wedding, and I, I did a pretty good job. The wedding went pretty well. The, um, the, the, the flower girl was, she's five. She's a bit of a drama queen, so I kind of ran down the aisle ahead of her. I was in a rush to get up to the front to be finished with my, with, my, with my task. But then after the wedding, I still had this suit. 
And when you're six or seven years old, you don't have many reasons to wear a suit. You're not going off to many business meetings and doing pitches and that sort of thing at that age. Even though I had my paper route, I didn't have to collect the money wearing a suit or anything like that. Uh, so I thought, well, what am I going to do with this suit? Well, as a family, we went to church every Sunday. So I thought, I'm going to wear my... There's some guys that wear suits to church. I'm going to wear my suit to church. The little old ladies loved me. Like, I was the cutest little thing walking around this church. And they were, they were coming, like, underneath this beard, there were some pretty chubby cheeks, okay? They were coming up and just going at me like this. And I heard that expression, like, good for you for wearing your Sunday best. Sunday best. I remember people saying to my parents, oh, it's so, so great that he knows to wear his Sunday best. And I really grew up with this idea, that's just, that, as a good Christian kid, that's what you're supposed to do. I went to a private Christian school. Every Wednesday we had a chapel service. I had to wear blue trousers, a white dress shirt, and a red tie. The whole, all of us as students, we looked like little walking American flags, basically, on Wednesdays. But that's what we had to wear in order to receive teaching from the Bible and to sing songs of worship on Wednesdays. That's what we had to wear. We had to be presentable. And that's a tradition that we would find among some Christians in, in our culture. Maybe some of you can relate to that a little bit. What about one that might be one that many in this room can probably relate to a little bit, but it might not be quite the same as, as clothing. What about praying before we have food? This is an interesting one for me because um, Natalia and I have really been struck by this since moving back to Canada that uh, we actually had somebody over for, for dinner in the, our first month or two um, lovely, lovely Christian couple, and we were enjoying a good evening with them. We continue to enjoy the good evening. Don't worry, the story's not taking a dramatic turn or anything, okay? But I had started to eat my dinner, and uh, I got a few, few mouthfuls in, and I could tell the guy was getting really fidgety. Like, he was getting really fidgety. And I thought, I, I, di- I just didn't clock it, because in the UK, where my wife Natalia and I had lived, I'd been there for nine years, my wife's British, it's just not the same thing. I'm not saying Christians over there are not grateful for food. That's not what I'm saying at all. Uh, But there wasn't the same, we must pray before the meal. And finally I was interrupted. Sorry, can we we just bless this food before we eat? (laughs) I felt really, really bad. And they were very gracious with us about it, but it was just this cultural thing that I I had just totally, totally missed. And uh, sometimes you can be around people, this person did not do this, but where, you know, you can be enjoying a really good evening that way, and then the food comes out, and suddenly, you know, they're really jovial and huggy and nice to have you in the house and anything we can do for you, and then let's just bless the food. Our Heavenly Father, we beseech thee for thine slain cattle. You know what I mean? It's just weird, like slain at Loblaws down the street. Like, it's just we turn into this strange ultra, like, you know, kind of revered and holy type people. But it's tradition, isn't it? It's tradition. And we can look at Scripture, and we see cases in Scripture, even two or three weeks ago when we were looking at Jesus feeding these, this crowd of thousands. What does Jesus do? He takes the food, he holds it up to heaven, and he blesses the meal. So don't hear me wrong. I'm not saying wearing nice clothes is wrong. I'm not saying praying before you eat is wrong or other examples like this. But what I'm saying is this. You could be doing it for the wrong reasons. And the Pharisees, the religious leaders here, are doing it for the wrong reasons. It is not wrong to thoroughly wash your hands before a meal. Where are my two children? Listen to me. It's not wrong to thoroughly wash your hands before a meal. But don't do it thinking that it's making you more holy or more presentable to God. God God can't be tricked like that. We might be. But God cannot be tricked like that. He's, He's actually quite wise. He can see through that. 
don't think that if you just, you have guests around and they know you go to church, so I better, I better pray before we have the food. You know, you, maybe you pull the wool over their eyes about some stuff for, for a couple minutes, but God isn't going to be tricked that way. God is much more interested in what is happening in the heart. And this is exactly where Jesus really catches these religious leaders out, where he really confronts them. He, 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 he doesn't pull his punches in the way that he engages with them on this. And the tone that he actually uses uh, is, is, is not just strong here in Mark chapter 7. It's actually strong in some other confrontations that he has with religious leaders as well. In Matthew chapter 23, uh, Jesus has a similar type of confrontation. This is what he says, Woe to you! Strong words, woe to you! Scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! Hypocrites! For you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within they're full of dead people's bones and all uncleanliness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Ouch. Ouch. Jesus isn't just saying, look, it's, it's not good to kind of focus on these external things. That's just not good. What he's actually saying is it's deadly. It's deadly to have this fixation on external signs of holiness, on external signs of being right with God. And friends, we can fall into this, even in this church. I know we meet in a fairly unorthodox venue, and we're quite casual in a lot of things we do, but it can be easy to come in and think, man, there's this, these areas of my life I'm just not trusting God, I'm just not leaning into Him. Things that you know that are against God's heart for you, but if I just come in, if I just raise a hand during worship, if I just close my eyes, if I take on this sort of posture, people around me will think that I'm, that I'm just nailing it, I'm doing great. And you know what? You might trick some people around you. But God knows the heart. He's much more interested in what is happening in your heart. Friends, I really want to encourage us, particularly those that would say this is their home church, let's be much, much more concerned with what's happening in here than what's happening out and around and various signs that we can put on. You might be hearing that thinking, Richard, are you saying it's wrong to raise a hand in worship? Look, my heart is that we hit a stage where because our hearts are in the right place, that as a church we're all raising our hands in worship because it's an overflow of the heart, not because we're trying to just do the external to, to convince others that we have these things all sorted. So how does Jesus respond in Mark chapter 7? Well, again, in a word, firmly, just like he does in Matthew chapter 23, the verses that I just read, this is what Jesus says in Mark 7. He says, well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it's written, this people honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as, the, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. I mean, it's language like this, it's, it's engagements like this that end up leading Jesus to be crucified. It ends up leading Jesus, have a seat anywhere you like. It's good to have you with us. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. Um, it's comments like these that, that lead to Jesus actually being crucified and losing his life. It's these confrontations with these Pharisees and these religious leaders. And... Uh, Jesus is engaging with them in a way that, that the crowd around him are kind of watching this saying, how is this going to play out? How is it that Jesus, is he going to get away with this? How are, the, how are these religious leaders going to respond to this? But the language that Jesus is using is really drawing the crowd in because of the picture that he's, that he's painting. And he's even drawing back to something that this prophet some 400 years earlier said about these religious leaders. And Jesus is saying, he hit it on the head. 
he hit it on the head when he said that you would honor me with your lips, that you would honor God with your lips, but your hearts are far from me. And then he goes on to give an example of a way that they're doing that. You might have heard in the verses that Andrea was reading out, there's this talk about honoring mother and father and uh, something being referred to as Corbin. Let me, let me just quickly unpack that. The fifth commandment is honor your father and your mother, that it may go well among you. Honor your father and your mother. So we find that grounded in Scripture from the earliest pages, this, this recognition of the institution of the family as, as, as a gift from God and, and placed in very, very high value. It's important for parents in the room that as we hear that, we should conduct ourselves honorably. We should be worthy of being honored. This is not just giving parents a blank check, all right? That's not what Scripture is saying. But it is a commandment given to children. Honor your mother. Honor your father. They're gifts from God. Now, what people would do is that they would set aside money in that culture for the care of their parents when they became elderly, something in our culture that many people still do and and, and should be quite prized. It's an honorable thing to do. Uh, to, whether it's a setting aside of money or helping out with, um, you know, with, with parents when they're reaching that age and in practical things that need to be done, whatever it is, that's an honoring thing to do. But what people started to do is that they would take the money that they had set aside for the care of their parents and they would give it into the temple. They would, they would give it to God. Now, you might hear that and think, well, that's not a bad thing. They, they gave money to God. What's, what's bad about that? The thing is, it was the heart is that they would be giving that money to God by robbing their parents of it. By thinking that they were stepping, maybe thinking they were stepping in obedience of showing generosity to God and giving into the temple, they were actually disobeying God in something that he had said to do in terms of the care of their parents. And Jesus is saying, look, this tradition, this thing that you've done, you've taken something in God's word, you've taken something that God commanded, and you've just twisted it. And not only have you twisted it, but you've twisted it in such a way to make it sound like God. You've twisted it to make it into something that's supposed to be understood as his voice. And that's not his voice. He's not said to do that. Don't, don't ignore what God has said here to go and pursue that. That's not worshipful, which is why the prophet says, in vain, in vain do they worship me. It's pointless. It's fruitless. Now, again, in our culture, we might have a hard time relating to that a little bit in terms of that example, but this is something that we can still do today, and we can pick on the Pharisees right here. We can pick on the religious leaders and think, man, oh, they just got it so wrong. They got it really bad. But friends, we we should be honest and recognize that we ourselves, Christians in the room, we do this ourselves. It would be easy for me as somebody on the team here at the church, as the team lead in this church, to sit up here and just really tell you what I think you want to hear. You know, we want to be a growing church. We want to reach more people in this city. So, One strategy might just be to get you here and tell you how great you are and that you're the greatest thing in the world and God's entire story is about trying to fit into yours and you just need to invite God into your story because you're so awesome and you're so great and boy, God's lucky to have you and we're lucky to have you and you're just the greatest thing in the world because it's about you, 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 you and twisting what God actually says in his word which is that apart from him, we are not good We are not great. In fact, the Apostle Paul uses even more stronger language than that. He talks about us being dead in our sin. Absolutely dead in our sin. In Ephesians chapter 2, But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love in which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespass, apart from Christ, that is our state. Like, that is who we are. 
Friend, if you're here this morning and you don't have a relationship with Jesus, in the scope of eternity, that is you. In this life, you might think, man, it's going great. I got the job. I got the salary. I've got retirement figured out. I've got comfort figured out. But in light of all of eternity, this lifetime, as precious as it is, is but a blip. It's but a fraction. And God in his love has made a way for you to know life eternally, not just for your good Lord willing 70 or 80 years or 90 years, but for all of eternity. But apart from Christ, you are dead in your sin. Christians in the room, before you knew Jesus, before that moment, you were dead in your sin and you stunk of sin. And there was a consequence for it. So we can slip into this thing of just telling people just how great they are and, and twisting scripture and, and, and trying to make it fit our language because it's a bit more comfortable. Thinking we might actually be loving people in the process while in the reality, in reality, we're actually harming them. We're actually not being honest with them and telling them about their need for Jesus Christ. What about another example that might be a little bit more culturally relevant? Uh, what if we just, you know, we just, let's just avoid the parts of the Bible that talk about relationships. Let's avoid the parts of the Bible that, that make us feel culturally a bit uncomfortable about how we are supposed to be in relationships with one another. Because it's all about God's grace, God's all about forgiveness, and, 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 and he'll just forgive us no matter what, and, and, and that's fine. So let's, you know, the parts where, where we read in Scripture, where, where the Bible says some things that just don't fit that well with us, well, let's just pass them off as being kind of culturally, you know, irrelevant, and, and, and we don't need those things. And we twist it again. We twist it again. We can sometimes do that thinking that we're loving people. In reality, we're harming them. Because God's word is life. It means life for us. God, guys, do we know this? God wants good for you. God wants to be your father. He doesn't want to be this distant ruler that you just think is kind of commanding you around at his whim. He loves you deeply. And the commandments in his word, the way that he says, live like this, it's for our good because he loves us. He loves you. He wants good for you. But he knows that you can't do it perfectly. He knows that I can't do it perfectly. And that's exactly the point of Jesus Christ. That's what Jesus is saying to these religious rulers that are showing up. You think you can do all these external things perfectly. You know the law. You've even added to the law. You've even added to these things yourself. But you know what? It's all external stuff. Your heart is far from God. And it's so easy to be around church, to be around Christians, to go through all of the motions of Christianity, even in modern-day Ottawa. Wake up, put on the Christian radio station, pick up the Christian book from the Christian bookstore, have coffee with the Christian friends from work, serve in the area that you're serving in the Christian church, go to the Christian church on Sunday... Show up at the prayer meeting, all of these things, it's possible to do all of that and still have a heart that is far from God. And I'll tell you, I know that because I've done it. It's easy to do that and to focus on all the external things when God is so interested in your heart. So interested in your heart. The heart sits at the very core of what is going on here. Hearts that are far from God are not just prone to, projecting, to rejecting God's word. They're also prone to manipulating it, to twisting it. It's the very first trick that we see the enemy do in the, in the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve. Did God really say you couldn't eat the fruit of the tree? Oh, no, no. Actually, God said we could eat of the fruit of any tree, just not one. See what the enemy does here? Twist God's word. And it's been happening ever since. 
But when we do that, when we move away from the truth of God's word, our hearts become hard. Our hearts become far from God. And we need help being drawn back in. But God, being full of grace and mercy, doesn't leave us in that place. He gives us an invitation. And some of you this morning, if you're feeling that, if you know, you know what, I've been going through all of the motions. I've been the master of going through all of the motions. But you know your heart is from God. You need to know the grace of God this morning. You need to know the grace of God this morning. God is not wanting to hold you out there and and kind of rub your nose in it. Bad you, bad you. That's not God's heart for you. He speaks to you as a loving father saying, my son, my daughter, come close again. Trust me again. I know you. I've not been tricked. Everybody else might be, but I've not been. And I still, I love you so much that I gave my only son for you. Come, draw near. In Proverbs chapter 4, verse 20 to 23, Solomon says this, My son, be attentive to my words. Incline your ear to my sayings. There's There's a prophetic element of this as well, of God kind of speaking this to us. Let my words, let them not escape from your sight. Let Keep them within your heart, for they are life to those who find them and healing to all their flesh. Keep your heart with all vigilance. Keep your heart. Protect your heart, for from it flow the springs of life. Do we see the connection here between trusting God and the heart? And I want to warn us against going away from this service this morning particularly Christians in the room, thinking, okay, I know my heart isn't in the right place, so there are these things that I need to change. There's this stuff that I need to do to change. I've got to change what I'm reading. I've got to, got to increase the amount of time I'm spending in the Bible. I've got to increase the amount of time that I'm, that I'm praying, and I've got to up my commitment to church. Like, all of these things aren't necessarily bad things. A friend, I'll tell you, you might still end up disappointed. This is a work that God does in you. And my encouragement to you this morning is invite God. Just say, God, this is something that you're going to have to do. Come and do this in me. Soften my heart. Give me a new heart. And this is is the amazing thing of the gospel. We can get into this type of thought that thinks that, uh, where we think that coming to Jesus, I mean, there are a lot of Christian books out there that even talk about it this way, that coming to Jesus is about improving your life. You know, it's your life as it currently stands and, and just making it a whole lot better. The Bible's a lot more honest about that. Coming to Jesus is actually putting to death the old self. That's how drastic a change that needs to happen. And don't get carried away with that. Don't start panicking and thinking like that's a physical death of your actual body right now. Of course, that is not what Scripture is talking about. But our soul, the way that we reject God, our hearts, they're so corrupted, they're so far from God on our own that we actually don't just need a new, or sorry, an improved heart some modifications, we actually need a new heart. So when we baptize people in the church, this is what it signifies, is that this going down into the water and coming back up, it's, it's, it, the, the pool is kind of like a watery grave. It's saying the old me is dead. The old me died with Jesus on the cross. My faith is in him. The old me is dead, and I've been raised to new life in him as well. And I have a new heart. This is what God promises In another book by by another prophet in the Old Testament, Ezekiel, he says this. He says, I will give you a new heart. God says this. Friend, he says this over you. He says this over us. I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. 
I will remove that heart of stone that is far from God, that is just hard to the things of God, and I will give you a soft heart of flesh that beats for the glory of God. Praise Jesus that he has made this possible.